Welcome back to Mid Wretched, everyone. Yay, welcome back, people. We are so glad that you're here. It is still snowing. It is still cold as hell. Yes. And but I've got fuzzy socks and ginger ale, so I'm good. How are you? I have um I've got a fuzzy blanket, I guess, and a space heater and a new puppy. Yay! Oh, your new puppy is basically the cutest thing. She is so cute. She's a murder boxer, so she's here to help us solve murders. Oh, murder beak and murder box. Oh, oh, murder box. That's adorable. Yeah, she is awesome. She's eight weeks old. She really likes pooping in the house and being cute. Aww. Yeah, those are her hobbies right now. She's adorable. Her name is Joe Lewis. Because the best boxer. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and it's nice to finally have somebody else in the house that appreciates a space heater. She loves to sit in front of the space heater, and so do I. Murder Beagle has, like, dragged all of his beds in front of the radiators. Just, like, lays there all the time. That's, I mean, that's Beautiful. basically what I do, too, though, honestly. I like to shove my pillows, like, down by the radiator and then pull them out only when it's time for bed. Oh, nice. That's, like, yeah. pulling them out of the dryer. Oh, so delicious. So good. And you need that in the middle of this bleak freaking winter that will not stop. My God, there is an insane amount of snow, and it keeps coming. Yeah. And I, I don't know what to do. Hibernate. That's all we can do. And... Oh. Talk about crazy stories. We're right off of Ed Gein, so we're all like, mm-hmm. we've been all messed up. All messed up in the head, and yeah. I, I hope you all got a palate cleanser for yourself this week. Yeah, I'm getting a hot stone massage because I'm still thinking about Ed Gein on my mental Oh, I'm day. so jealous. Mm-hmm. I'm excited. I'm really excited. And I think it's oh. going to help because this case also, it, you know, it it's rough, it's tough, and it's crazy. Yeah. You want to get into it? Uh, Oh. Yeah. Trying to think if I had any updates or anything. No? Not really. Um, Anthony Sowell is dead. (gasps) Anthony Sowell is dead. Yeah. Crazy. So that happened. And if you want to know more about Anthony Sowell, listen to, what is it, episode four? Yeah, when we were babies. Yeah, we were just babies, so excuse the poor quality. We were still figuring ourselves out. But, But I mean, it's really good, though. Really good information. Yeah. And such a great, oh, that's still one of my favorite episodes that we have. Ah, uh, that was such a messed up episode. Yeah, but so good though. In other updates, I am fully vaccinated. Yeah, you do look a little bit like a lizard. <laughs> Thank you. I'm trying to get those like vertical eye flaps kind of. I'm really excited for those. Yes. And I'm going to try cutting off a limb and see if it grows back. So I'll Perfect. let you guys know how that goes. See, now you know what to do in these terrible winter days. You have a project. You're DIYing it. Heads up. Just everybody just take a day off after you get the vaccine. Just the next day. Just. Yeah. Given to the exhaustion and the chills. I promise they will go away. Yikes. You know, what's going to be really weird is like when our grandchildren are listening to episodes of our show, they're going to be like, what vaccine are you talking about, grandma? And I'd be like, I don't know. I've had so many. <laughs> <I know. laughs> All of our little lizard babies just running around. <laughs> Anyway, will somebody please go sit on my eggs over there? <laughs> I'll do it. <laughs> These hips have to be good for something. Uh, mine are not good for anything. <laughs> Aw, they're good for my dreams. Heyo. Heyo. So there's like no good way to segue from that into this terrible story. 
I don't know anything about this story, so I can't segue it. So. Well, here's how I'll segue it. It is semi-local to you, kind of, about 50 miles away from you. <gasps> oh, that's right. It's in Zion. Yes. Weird town. It's a super interesting town, and that's where I want to start. I want to talk a little bit about just this town and its history because it's really interesting, and... Um, we may be able to put together some pieces. We may not as to, you know, what made this case kind of possible in this town. But it's still interesting backdrop for sure. Is Zion anti-vax? Uh, I think they're probably anti many things, although Zion now is not what Zion was in its founding. So, well, let me describe its history and then we can kind of make make a theory. So Zion, Illinois, it's a city of about 25,000 people. It is 41 miles north of downtown Chicago. So it's uh, like due north of Chicago and right tucked up uh, at the Wisconsin state line. So it's basically like you're at the state line. You got Wisconsin to the north and then Mm -hmm. Lake Michigan to the east. Beautiful place to be. Oh, beautiful. There's like sand dunes. And they've done a really nice job building like a really beautiful park system. There's beaches and forests and all kinds of stuff. So it's a beautiful place uh, with kind of an interesting and contentious history. So Zion was founded by an evangelical minister and faith healer uh, named John Alexander Dowie. He was a Scottish immigrant who kind of had this vision of basically founding a town that would be like a utopia, basically. So many terrible towns were founded that way. I have been stunned just about how common, I guess, this is for a town story. And I just, it kind of blows my mind a little bit how much of these things kind of become part of the actual town governance and how long they were able to stay that way. just goes to show kind of how young America is in a lot of ways, you know. Do you have any Oneida silverware? I do. Plenty of it. Why? It was founded in a similar way. Really? Yes. And then there was lots of sex. And then they, you know, just decided on making utensils. Fun story behind Oneida. Yeah, Google it. Weird. Okay, I will Google that. There's going to be like a couple of different points in between those two very large points that led to that that I'm really curious about. You know what? I just like to leave the big ones in there. <laughs> yeah, as you should. Leave the rest of the work to, to everybody else. So uh, Zion was basically like built, like I said, with this idea of being like a utopia. So its history was very restrictive. Things that were illegal in Zion for a long time. Like one example is um, science essentially so the flat so earth anti-vax they, well yeah probably they um <laughs> flat earth theory was written into like town documentation oh God. yeah it was also not legal in zion to gamble uh theaters were not legal of course there was no sale of alcohol or tobacco there's mm-hmm. still a dry county I be- or a dry town i believe it's not a dry town but it's about as dry as a town can get without being officially dry. Like a Provo, Utah kind of yeah, situation. Yeah, exactly. All right. All right. Yeah. And there was also a ban on pork, dancing, swearing, spitting, politics, doctors, oysters, and tan colored shoes. <laughs> so many questions. I know. I, I want to know the story behind all of those. Like, I understand pork, I understand dancing, I understand swearing, I get spitting, I don't get oysters, and there's got to be a story there. 
Or the tan colored shoes. Okay, I was going to say, you don't have a question about tan colored shoes. I I mean, my brain is like, is it because of leather? But So there used to be, somewhere in Ohio, there was a law that women couldn't wear patent leather shoes because they were shiny and you could see up women's skirts, apparently, if you looked really, really hard. Wow. Well, if you're looking that hard, my gosh. But okay, there's a ban on politics. Mm-hmm. Exactly. How does one do that and govern a town? Um, I don't think that really you can. The The problem there is that it basically has to be that like the the central church is like the center of all of the town comings and goings and decisions. Right. So does that mean you can't vote? That's a good question. I don't know what they would have done about that. A lot of the things in the original Zion City lease, uh, which is where these bands came from, were gone through the 50s. So I'm curious about how I I would bet, though, that no, people did not vote. I hate this town. Yeah. Well, what's interesting about the town is that like people flocked to it because it really like it made you a promise. It's going to be this pure utopia, crime free, safe place to, you know, raise children and just have a really simplified lifestyle. Um, You know who else made that promise? Who? Jim Jones. True that. I was just going to say. Okay. <laughs> anyway, yeah. go ahead. I'll stop cutting you off. Yeah, well, it's okay. I know. I know. I know. So it's different now. That's the thing. It's a beautiful place. You've got these beautiful parks and sand dunes. But there's also a very significant degree of poverty and crime. The way that I have kind of tracked this history for myself is that Zion had this like leap in population when it was founded and then kind of a steady little way of of plateauing and then when the restrictions kind of went away i think more people came to zion still seeking the same thing the beautiful parks and nature and safety but i think it took an increase in population that it wasn't ready to have basically yeah and so the crime rate is significantly higher than both the illinois state average and national averages wow yeah so it's worse by capita, the crime rate is higher than Chicago's. Yeah. Wow. It's okay. Really intense. It's really intense. So I just think that the infrastructure wasn't ready to handle it. I don't think that they were prepared for like diversified schools, um, mm-hmm. any real degree of integration, those types of things. So I just think it wasn't ready for what happened to it. That kind of sets the stage for the case. Like the big population increase was 80s and 90s. And then our case takes us to 2005. Oh, wow. Not so far away. Yes. A year that uh, we both graduated high school. Good year. Mm -hmm. Yes. Not a great year for the town of Zion, unfortunately. So on Mother's Day 2005, uh, which fell on May 8th, two best friends, Laura Hobbs, who was eight, and Crystal Tobias, who was nine, they were both in the second grade together, uh, were playing together that afternoon. They both lived on the same street, Gilboa Avenue in Zion. Uh, And they loved just riding their bike. Laura had a little white bicycle that Crystal would sit on top of the handlebars and they would just cruise up and down that street um, all day long. Yeah. (laughs) So they were just kind of having a good afternoon that way. It was Mother's Day. So earlier that day, the Hobbs family had spent their time at the beach, flying kites and just having a nice day. Uh, Laura Hobbs lived with her mother and father. Her mom's name is Sheila Hollibo. And her dad's name is Jerry Hobbs. And then Crystal lived with her parents as well, uh, Santiago and Christina Tobias. 
these were kind of like they're really cute little streets. It's definitely like a very working class neighborhood. Uh, lots of cute little bungalows. Really tight knit neighborhood kids mm-hmm. that just were together like all the time. So. These two especially were known as just, like, best friends, like, inseparable. When they were allowed to go out and play for the day, they would just be together, like, all day. Aww. Um, Yeah, so sweet. So, basically what happened on Mother's Day that we know is that the Hobbs family, like I said, was having a a picnic at the beach for lunch that day. They got home at about 1 o'clock. So, by 2 o'clock, Laura had caught up with Crystal and uh, the first stop that they made was to go to their friend Hector Montez's house to play football. So they went over to Hector's house and they were playing football and goofing off until about three o'clock. And then the Montez family, they uh, left to go have their own Mother's Day celebration at a local ice cream parlor. So Crystal and Laura, and this just kind of goes to show how the neighborhood, how, just how the neighborhood was. They went to their friend Cristela Flores's house. The Flores family wasn't even home. But Crystal and Laura just played in their backyard, which we know because neighbors saw them. And that just wasn't unusual. Uh, It's just such an idyllic thing, right? Like the kids just kind of have free run of the neighborhood. They're in each other's yards, just hanging out. I definitely had friends like that growing up. Even if they weren't home, we were just hanging out at their place. Really? Yeah. Wow, you did not grow up in Detroit. (laughs) I did not grow up in Detroit. (laughs) I read this and I was like, you played in somebody's backyard when they weren't home? Oh, yeah, we totally did that. Wow. Or, like, even if, like, our friend wasn't home and their parents were, they just, like, let us in and let us hang out. Yeah, no. I just, like, when I read that, I was like, wow, that's so, that's just so nice. Man, that's so nice. (laughs) I should backtrack and just give credit where credit's due real quick, too. So um, there's lots of really good information out there about this case. Mostly I pulled everything from newspapers, so Chicago Tribune. Washington Post had a couple of really good articles. Washington City Paper had really good articles. The Washingtonian um, and Murderpedia, which, of course, is a good repository. So I just want to put credit Mm -hmm. where credit is due as far as all the information goes before I dive into the rest of the day. So that sighting at about 4 o'clock by Cristela Flores' neighbors was the last time the two girls were seen alive. Laura Hobbs... I really just, I felt myself in this child when I heard this description. She uh, was kind of the ringleader of all the other kids and kind of like the mother hen, it sounds like, for all the other kids. Aww. Yeah, and she was very punctual. So 7 p.m. was the kind of family curfew in the Hobbs' house for um, the younger kids. And Laura would like tell the other kids in the neighborhood, no matter what their family curfews were, like, it's 7 p.m., you need to go home. So I was like, that is so me. Like, like just end the day and tell them. Like, don't be late, you guys. But Laura was strictly punctual. And because she was, the other kids were too. So basically, like, Crystal's family could expect that she would be home by 7-ish as well because she wasn't going to play if it wasn't with Laura anyway. So 7 rolled around and neither of the girls was home. The families, of course, started to worry a little bit, um, but they weren't yet worried enough to call the police. They have gotten some criticism for this, but I think it's tough when the kids are like that almost independent age between like 8 and 12 where they don't helicopter your kids quite as much as you would if they were 5, you know? How old were these girls again? 8 and 9. They were second graders. 
Yeah, I can see you kind of giving your kids a little bit more like free reign at that time. Yeah, or just that like the assumption is they're at a friend's house still, they lost track of time, you know, whatever. And that that's where your brain would go first. Whereas with a much littler kid, your brain is going to first go to the panic. So there's been some critique of the families for not reporting right away. But I kind of think we have to be a little bit flexible about that. It's not like they were wasting the time. They were in touch with each other. So, of course, the Tobias family and the Hobbs family immediately in touch with each other. All the other, you know, neighborhood kids... Parents were all driving around looking for the two girls. The families were calling all the other neighbors and friends from the elementary school. They got a hold of the principal at the elementary school who was able to give them um, because, well, it's actually not against FERPA, um, who gave them like a list of all the other kids in second grade and their family phone numbers so that they could just call. Yeah. I was going to say, when we were in school, the they just gave those out at the beginning of the year. My gosh. Yeah, they had like a whole like directory of like, especially like a class list of everybody in the class, their phone number. That was just a thing. Wow, you grew up in Mayberry, like straight up. <laughs> and elementary school, right there, like, what's your burner phone number, though? <laughs> <laughs> okay, we got your cell phone, but what's your burner? Yeah, but what's the number? What's your unlisted number? <laughs> So anyway, um, all of that ended up yielding no no solid information. They were looking to trace the timeline that I already told as far as, you know, kind of whose house at what time, that sort of stuff. But that was kind of where, as far as they could get. So both families called the police to report the girls missing independently, but a little bit after nine o'clock. So like two hours. People really got on these parents for waiting two hours. Yeah. Of course, not everybody got on them, but there's been, I saw a little bit too much critique that, you know, for me to be comfortable with. You know, again, if it was a four-year-old and you waited four minutes, I would be like, what are you thinking? You know, Mm -hmm. but, and so here's the other reason that I think it took a little bit of time as well. So Zion is like, it's not a huge town, 25,000 people. Again, all of this parkland and kind of in the middle of town is this really big park called Beulah Park. It's about 80 acres, which for a park situated in the middle of a a town seems huge to me, honestly. Mm -hmm. Now, Beulah Park was unfortunately known for um, basically just being kind of a nuisance in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Um, Families generally did not like to have their kids play there by themselves. It's got a lot of trails. It's very heavily wooded, so it's not like a a playground park. It's a nature park. Uh, Wooded... Uh, nature trails, mountain biking trails, stuff like that. And then there's a ravine area that was seen as especially dangerous just because it was known to be a place where lots of shady things and shady people hung out, basically. It was the drugs park. It was the drugs park. So between being the drugs park and just like muggings were common, that kind of stuff, um, between that and the wilderness of it, the girls were not allowed to play there. Despite that, a neighbor came forward at one point to say that their daughter was invited by Laura and Crystal to go play in the ravine, that the mom that reported this told her daughter that she couldn't go with them. So even though Laura and Crystal were not allowed to play at Beulah Park, they were going to anyway, according to this mom. So that's a big park. And I think part of the mentality was like, okay, if they're playing at Beulah Park, 
and they got lost off of a trail that's mm-hmm. scary and dangerous, but not necessarily like a, a life and death situation, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. But it had been a couple hours. So the police search got underway, you know, right away. There was lots of officers on foot. There were canine units. There were lots of volunteers. And the search focused pretty much everywhere. Like Zion, you know, it's not a huge town, but they covered like every inch of it. They retraced all of the reported steps that we knew of. They, you know, started combing the park. They went all the way down to downtown. It was going to be a long night, though, just because there's so much wooded park and just land area to cover. Like, you get through downtown Zion, like, okay, that takes, you know, not a very long time. But you've got these Mm -hmm. acres and acres and acres of parks. Um, That's It was going to be a long night. (laughs) And so, you know, many family members of both families participated in the search Uh, Lots and lots of volunteers. People were really out to help. So what happened next was pretty tragic. Um, So shortly after daybreak, Jerry Hobbs, that's Laura's father, found his daughter's white bicycle at Beulah Park. Um, Again, the bicycle that they would ride together. Um, And so not far from the bicycle were the bodies of the two girls. I'm going to talk a little bit about the situation with the bodies just on kind of a basic level, and then we'll talk more in depth about the medical examination later on. So Mm -hmm. the Lake County coroner, Richard Keller, he concluded right away that both girls were stabbed and beaten, uh, mostly about the neck, and that there did not appear to be a sexual assault. The big thing that got like kind of blown up in the news media was basically that Laura's eyes had been gouged out or carved out and that's oh. what that's what the news kind of latched onto was that there was just like this uh, vile excision of her eyes oh jeez yeah we're gonna challenge that a little bit later but that was like the part of the whole situation physically that got for obvious reasons it's so it's so dark and so gruesome it got really blown up in the news reports and in the media kind of surrounding the case you know what this is reminding me of, though, right? Tell me. Delphi. I know. I've been thinking so much about Delphi because uh, the four-year anniversary was two days ago as of yep. this recording. And, man, no press conference this year. We have no new information. That's um, so tough. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah, but this case does feel reminiscent of that. Part of me thinks that how this case got solved, well... We'll get there. We'll just keep going. We're going to put that on the shelf. We'll get there. Shelve that. Shelve it. So, um, again, we'll talk more about those injuries later. The other kind of important thing to note is that the two girls were, the bodies were laid side by side together, mm-hmm. both facing oh. out. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So they were staged. Yes. So Jerry Hobbs having found the bodies was under immediate suspicion. Now, the... News would say, oh, he found the bodies. The truth of it was that he found the bicycle. And then, Mm -hmm. from what I understand, kind of spotted from a distance what he thought were going to be the bodies. Like, I imagine he probably saw, you know, some clothing or something like that that stood out. But he did not, Mm -hmm. like, stumble upon the bodies. He found the bicycle. He essentially found the spot where they were. um, So he was under immediate suspicion. He has a very long history of several offenses ranging, yeah, so as small ones like marijuana possession, but also some domestic abuse. 
And the icing on the cake for his record at this time was a felony assault for chasing somebody with a chainsaw. What? Yes. So he actually had just gotten been released from prison in Texas like three weeks before this double murder for the fight. So basically he got into a fight with this other dude. The other guy brought uh, a knife to the fight and Jerry Hobbs brought a chainsaw. Got a chainsaw to a knife fight. Yeah, I know, right? There's a Taylor Swift <laughs> song in there somewhere. I just need to find it. Um, but so he was he chased the guy away. And so he was jailed for that and then released and on parole and then had done some kind of parole violation and was back in jail, released three weeks before. Um, and all this happened in Texas where he was kind of exiled because his relationship with Sheila was really violent and bad. So he basically kind of moved back to Illinois with the Hollabaugh family kind of as like a um, kind of a mea culpa the way I understand it. Like, let me try to be a part of, you know, my kids' lives, that kind of stuff. Interesting. Yeah, but I do not, and the information on this was sketchy, I do not believe that at the time of the murders he had a romantic relationship with Sheila anymore. I think it was just a functional one. Yeah, I mean, those things always go back and forth with right. stuff like that. They're so inconsistent. So Yeah, the lines are very blurry, obviously. Yeah, so his rap sheet was long and violent. Mm-hmm. And the fact that there also had not been evidence of a sexual assault led investigators to think that there must have been a different motive, which basically kind of would fit in with the idea of it being kind of an aggressive, angry, like violent father, essentially like going off on his child and her friend, like losing his cool as a result of like an argument or something like that. Yeah. Um, I also think it did not work in Jerry Hobbs's favor that he is a scary looking dude, like no judgment, but... He just looks menacing. This has also given me major West Memphis vibes. Yes. Big time. Uh, right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The fact that we don't talk about this case a lot, like, blows my mind. But, okay. I'm so fascinated by this. I can't wait to keep going. Oh, yeah. So he, um, like I said, he's just got this history that is frightening. So he was taken for questioning by the Lake County Violent Task Force shortly thereafter. Um And he was held for about 20 hours. In that 20 hours, he was questioned, obviously, extensively. Just to get these dates right, May 8th was the Mother's Day. The discovery of the body is dawn-ish on May 9th. And then on May 10th, Jerry Hobbs gave a statement to officers. Now, his official statement is pretty bonkers. (laughs) You can find and watch the recording of him um, like reading the statement. You know, they make you read the statement and everything for the record. So what he said happened that day. This is his recollection of the day. So the family had gone to the beach and, you know, flown kites and stuff. And when they got back, he and Sheila disagreed about whether or not Laura should be allowed to go out and play with Crystal because Laura was actually supposed to be grounded. So Sheila was like, yeah, just go. And he just didn't voice his concern as much as he wanted to, but he was pretty pissed off about it, basically. Mm -hmm. He said that he went to go look for Laura at about 4.30, which is a half an hour after the last time she was seen with Crystal playing in the Flores' backyards. He stated that he walked along a wooded trail at Beulah Park where he found Laura and Crystal hanging out and playing. 
And he told Laura that she had to come home with him. Now, um, as he reads this part of the statement, he begins to cry. And the crying just grows kind of as he continues to tell the story. So he's just kind of sobbing and telling the story that she argued with him and said, no, I'm not going to go. And he grabbed her by the arm. Uh, Laura asked to be let go. And at that point, Crystal asked Jerry to let Laura go as well. Then Crystal brandished a knife, according to Jerry. Okay, Jerry, keep Uh going. Repeatedly telling Jerry to let Laura go. So the second grade girl pulls a knife out and is like, let my friend go. (laughs) Yeah. So... You know, Jerry and Laura at this point are fighting, and he reports punching her in the face and knocking her to the ground. And then Crystal advanced on him, and that he also punched her, knocking her down and taking the knife. He then describes basically flying into a rage and stabbing Crystal in the neck and torso and chest. And then turned to Laura, who was starting to come to, so he punched her again and then stabbed her also in the torso, chest, neck, and face. He said that it all happened really fast. And Mm -hmm. they asked him, how many times do you think that you stabbed them? He says he thought he stabbed Crystal six times and Laura about ten. So then he reports walking home, leaving the girls there, walking home, washing up, washing the knife off with alcohol. and, And that was it. That was the day. He got rid of his clothes. And then he joined the search efforts. Your thoughts? Okay, so first of all, second grader in a knife fight. Right. <laughs> um, okay. But then also, he's saying he went from the trail, walked home. Did nobody see a man covered in blood stains? Because you can't stab someone that many times without getting blood all over you. No, you really can't. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, nobody reportedly saw him, and the knife was not recovered in the home either. Okay. So that is obviously problematic, right? Uh Uh-huh. I will say that I couldn't find a paper copy of the confession. I just found the audio, and he is crying so hard that there are some places that you just can't hear him at all. Like, you can't understand what he's saying. So... I'm just, I'm I'm so suspect. There's so many parts of that that don't make sense. Yeah. What do you think is the part that makes the least sense to you? The fact that the eight or nine-year-old just had a knife on her. I mean, unless it was like a pocket knife. Like, okay, like kids carry pocket knives when you live in that kind of area. That That's not super uncommon. But the fact that a little girl a little kid would think to pull out and brandish a knife on their friend's parent. Yes. And very, very large man. Like Jerry Hobbs is big. He's imposing. He's menacing looking. It's believable that he got upset and went out looking for this girl. It's believable that she didn't listen to him. It doesn't sound like he probably had the best relationship with his kids, given his backstory. Mm -hmm. But Everything after he confronted her and tried to get her to go home doesn't make any sense. Right. So put that in your rage pocket. Okay. (laughs) Put that in your rage pocket. So uh, at this point, it's about 5.50 a.m. on May 10th, and he signs the statement of his confession. He's booked, 
And a few days later, because of the extensiveness of his criminal history and the severity of the crime, is denied bond. So he goes down right away. Now, that would not be the end of this case's time in the media, obviously. So uh, because it's such a heinous, heinous crime. And the two girls, when you see the pictures, like, gosh, they are so cute. Like, Mm -hmm. just sweet neighborhood girls. And um, even though Zion was a, a place with a lot of crime, it's the kind of place where, like, there's a lot of crime, but if you're in the community of people doing illegal activities, mm-hmm. you know, you kind of know that, right? But, and and the crime is kind of confined to that stuff. It's robberies, it's drugs, it's that kind of stuff. You know, assaults, you know, related to robberies and drugs. It's not like the violent and abhorrent killing of two little girls. So, yeah. Uh, it got a lot of national attention. So Greta Van Susteren, who I love, <laughs> she um, did an interview a couple days later with uh, both sides' legal teams. Okay. So okay. Uh, I thought this stuff was really interesting. So the Lake County um, State's Attorney, Michael Waller, told Greta that his thought was that nobody was going to believe that Crystal was carrying around a knife, obviously. And that Hobbs had basically said that to make himself look better, to make it look more spontaneous, Um, but that it was his belief that um, Hobbs had gone into the woods intending to do uh, what was done. And he didn't say this directly, but I got the sense that he probably thought that Hobbs just like tossed the knife into the woods or something like that, um, or tossed it into some water, and that's why it wasn't found. So... Basically, that was Waller's point, that he said that to make himself look better. But Greta Van Susteren, um, incisive beauty that she is, also asked if anyone in the family had expressed suspicion towards Hobbs uh, in the period of time that they were looking. And he had to say that no one really had. Um, And that that was kind of just something about this that was going to make it hard for the prosecution, that even though police were like, you know, kind of suspicious of him as soon as the bodies were found, the family was still kind of confused, basically. Like, Mm -hmm. it sounded like Sheila's dad was kind of, I don't want to say close, but he seemed to be kind of the one, like, arbitrating the uh, Jerry kind of, like, living there and being able to see his kids and stuff like that. So he kind of spoke out and said that he wasn't sure if Jerry had done it. He was very confused if Jerry did do it, that he should be executed, but he just didn't know, and that his daughter felt the same way, just confused. So they're at least like, let's do a fair trial here before we kind of... Right, but when you've got a history like that, what kind of fair trial are you ever really going to get? And especially when you layer that with, again, just how ugly and like unspeakably awful this crime was. Yeah. Um, So basically what... Waller, the, you know, state's attorney said also was that when Hobbs discovered the bicycle, that he was also able to describe the crime scene without actually having seen it. So uh, that is what he asserted to Greta Van Susteren. So then Greta turns to David Brodsky, who is uh, the lead defense attorney for Jerry Hobbs, who was court appointed. So the relationship is different when it's court appointed. So he didn't have a ton to say. He just kind of gave some platitudes like, you know, we will leave no stone unturned in our defense of Jerry Hobbs. Uh, And he kind of corroborated what Waller said about the family just being freaking confused, basically. Mm -hmm. 
that's basically what it looked like. Like when Brenda spoke to the news, she was just expressing obviously grief and extreme confusion. And the same thing with Crystal's parents. They were just really, really confused and upset, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just going to backtrack a little bit just to say like, okay, there's a lot of information about the Hobbs, Hobbs Hollibaugh family because of the fact that Jerry was the one, you know, taken to court for this. Um, yeah. The Tobias family, lovely family, it sounds like. Lots of kids, lots of siblings. The parents were immigrants from Mexico coming over to, you know, raise their kids in the U.S. So it sounded like they were kind of just a pretty, like, happy, you know, together family, blended family, a couple of half-siblings. All right. So not a lot of drama there. The Hobbs-Hollabaugh family was kind of where all the drama was with the domestic abuse. And, you know, kind of Jerry Hobbs, like, floating in and out of the kids' lives, that kind of stuff. And it sounds like just because they were in the media, they had, we have more information about them. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, and I think there's just also just more information to kind of have, like, the Tobias family. No one in the family had a criminal history at all. Um, mm-hmm. Nothing like that. So just a nice family, it sounds like. So basically... Everything from here on out moved pretty slowly. So, Mm. you know, Illinois, y'all don't do a great job with moving cases through the system super quickly. We drag them the fuck out. Yes, yes, y'all do. So everything moved pretty slowly. Jerry Hobbs was booked uh, and denied bond, and he sat in jail for five years before a trial date of October 2010 was set. Uh, Five years? Yeah. So jury selection was set to begin on October 1 of 2010. You and I have now graduated college. I know. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, between the time that this happened and the time that the trial would even begin, five freaking years. Oh, my God. Yes. So in that time, though, the attorneys involved were very, very busy. What would your first move be if you were the defense team? If I was the defense team, Mm -hmm. I would want to probably first interview just about everyone in town to see if they had seen Jerry, because the fact that he would have walked from this park through the neighborhood is somebody had to have seen him and somebody there has to be some kind of evidence there. Yeah. I also would want to interview his family and hear about his relationship with his kids Because it's possible that although he has this contentious, you know, violent background, that he was different toward his kids. We've seen that before. Totally. Yeah, totally. That would be my first go-to. So, uh, interestingly, the defense team, they're going a little bit more macro than that. They're like, you know what? Screw this confession. Let's get this tossed out. So. Okay. I mean, uh, okay, this is why I'm not a lawyer. Because, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, basically, their point of view is that. By the time he signed that confession, he had been awake for 48 straight hours. Oh, shit. Okay. Yeah, that's not a good time to get a... I mean, I guess if you're trying to get somebody to say something, that's a good way to get a confession. But... Yeah. But... Oh. Sleep-deprived mind says bad things. Exactly. So he had been up, obviously, all day and then all night doing the search and then subjected to 20 hours of questioning. There was also some accusation that in that questioning, he was, like, punched and that he was denied food and water. He himself would later say that that wasn't true. Okay. Um, But the defense team, I think, wanted it to be true. Obviously, they want every reason to toss this out. So 
basically, like, as you just said, the defense team was like, he was physically and emotionally exhausted by the end of that period of time. So even if he consented to that confession, is it fair to keep it because your brain's going to be a pile of actual jello by the end of that conversation, right? No, I would say, like, you are no longer in your right mind after 36 to 48 hours with no sleep. Yeah, I saw, I don't remember what the statistic was, but it was like, um, I think I saw on a billboard, like, what degree of sleeplessness equates to being over the legal limit of drunkenness? Mm -hmm. And it was surprisingly short. It's like 30 hours. Yeah. Um, I'm addicted to sleep, so I don't tend to have that problem. (laughs) (laughs) We talk about that a lot in this house because I'm, like, not functional on less than six hours and optimally functional at, like, nine. But... I mean, I can function on like five or six hours of sleep, but I don't like it. No, and I'm like a nightmare. I'm a monster at that Mm. little sleep. So Jerry Hobbs, I think, was probably kind of a monster at that that point as well. Yeah. So uh, he actually, I thought this was really interesting and poignant too. When his mom came to see him right after he was booked, he broke down and told her, Mama, they broke me. And so the defense team wanted to use the fact that he had said that to um, assert that the confession was coerced. Mm, I don't know. That's it's too vague of a statement, I think, to do anything. It is. Yeah. I mean, broke me could mean, you know, got me to break my silence or whatever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, because of that, unfortunately, like the state was basically able to argue back like he consented. He was Mirandized, uh, I think, four times that night. He did not ask for a lawyer. He knew he was entitled to one. So that motion was denied. The confession was going to stay. So David Brodsky, that lead defense attorney, had to retool. And I love this guy because even though he is the court-appointed attorney, he, he dove in. All right. Way to be. And that's not to say anything against court-appointed attorneys. Not at all. The thing is, court-appointed attorneys are so overworked. Their caseloads are so high that it's hard to really dig into a case for a lot of them. So Exactly. So the fact that he found the time or made the time to do this, I think it's just really impressive. And I think it speaks to also, like, the contrast of the state's case kind of comes to them on a silver platter in a way. Like, not necessarily because the evidence is that good. But because circumstantial evidence plus a history like Jerry Hobbs's history is going to speak to a jury, Mm -hmm. no matter kind of how you slice it. So David Brodsky shifted his focus to the the scene itself, the crime scene. And this, so I want to talk um, kind of a bit more of the physical details here. So Jerry Hobbs's account of what happened was of like a frenzied heat of the moment killing. But the state of the bodies implied something very, very different than that. I found this wonderful article written by um, actually this guy's brother-in-law on truthout.org. Oh, Oh, so interesting. So basically the first thing that he noticed was exactly what you had said. The bodies had been staged. Mm -hmm. They were laid down neatly next to each other and their shoes were not on their feet, but they were tied and placed nearby. Interesting. Like on the ground or in the trees? On the ground. Like next to them, like they would just pick them up and walk. Yeah. Huh. So that was weird, obviously. And so if there had been a chaotic attack like the one that Hobbs described, 
Mm-hmm. The way that bodies would fall as a result of a stabbing is not going to be in like a sleep position like they were in. No. Like, kind of gently on their backs. Um, Nor would they be like, it sounds like they were like parallel to each other. Yeah, they were laying next to each other. So That's, cr- no. It would be much more chaotic and random than that, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so that obviously was a red flag. Then he took a look at the wounds themselves. So by doing some treatment on the photographs, like upping the contrast and stuff like that, he was able to find, corroborated by some expert witnesses, that there was some bruising on both of the girls' bodies that was left by an object uh, that left bruises kind of in the shape of like bagels or donuts, Uh, like small, like uh, an inch or so. Uh, There was bruising in that shape on both of the bodies. Wait, like a circle or like concentric circles? Concentric circles. Huh. Yeah. Weirdly. Okay. I'm just, I'm desperately racking my brain for what could make that. I know. I'm thinking got to be some kind of like, um, I could picture like the end of like a, um, like a multi-tool that you would use. Oh, like the, the back end of a wrench where it, yes. yeah. Exactly. Okay. That okay. Thing. That's what I picture. So. The next thing that was interesting was that when the bodies were kind of cleaned up and you look at the summary of the autopsy, the wounds inflicted on both girls were very similar to each other. So again, a chaotic stabbing, if you imagine that, is not going to have the same wounds in the same spots, right? Mm-mm, nope. But both girls had the same wounds in the same spots. Yeah, that's that's planned. It's planned. It's methodical, right? Mm-hmm. Here's the clincher for me. The wounds tell such a story in and of themselves. I thought this was freaking fascinating and terrible. So each stab wound on the girls' bodies was actually the result of a three-step process. First, there were two basically like soft puncture wounds to mm-hmm. each wound. I kind of pictured it like vampire bites. And then a final, much harder blow between the punctures. So suddenly you kind of picture that. And to me, the word that comes to mind is ritualistic. Um, Yeah. Obviously, it was slow. It took some time. And each wound or many of the wounds had this pattern of two punctures and a third blow. And then there was the issue of Laura's eyes. Mm-hmm. So remember that being in the media as like her eyes had been stabbed out, gouged out in this like really, really violent way. Uh, the truth was actually much different. So her eyes were wounded, but the eyeballs themselves had been cut around almost gently, basically like kind of tracing the brow bone. So if you picture like um, kind of like a surgical carving, I'm going to put my face right up to the camera. Uh, the wounds were basically around the entire orb of the eyeball, but the eyeballs were intact. So they cut out the orbital opening. Correct. Okay. But the eyes were intact. Yeah. I mean, relatively intact, you know, like it was still rough, but yeah. And that was just in one of the girls. Yes, just Laura. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's so strange, but so telling. Like that's so much to go off of. And... In five years, mm-hmm. like how uh, is anybody still believing Jerry's story at this point? 
most people are. And I think in the community, people want to see this guy freaking fry is the thing. But David Brodsky's investigation as the defense attorney is heads and shoulders above the job done by the Lake County um, investigative force, unfortunately. And I don't want to besmirch them, but here's the thing. Lake County, you got money. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Things were missed. Fund this. Yeah, things were missed. Uh, that's a lot to miss. A lot of what seems like first-line investigative things. Mm-hmm. Is this a patterned killing? Are there any telltale marks? Like, just because you got a confession doesn't mean that that's where the investigation ends. Exactly. And this is where, when I alluded to it really reminding me of Delphi in other ways, to me, this Mm -hmm. kind of wounding is the kind of thing that we heard the ex-DA down there say there were signatures, but they would surprise you. Yeah. When I hear that, I hear about like what my brain does is like strange wounds or like a weird way of going about something physically. That's what this kind of felt like to me. Yeah. I can't associate that with any specific symbol or sign, but it's definitely a signature. Exactly. It's unique and it's very strange. Here's the part that's really going to just make your rage pocket explode. So... You know, the medical examiner has obviously, like, a protocol for what they have to do Mm -hmm. in in an autopsy situation like this. And obviously, a rape kit is part of that protocol. Yes. So there was, in the original examination, partial DNA from under both girls' fingernails that matched an unknown male. However, because Hobbs had already confessed... The state just chalked this up to another encounter, most likely just like rough housing with a friend, like they'd done the um, football at Hector's house, that sort of thing. Okay, but still test that shit. Yes. And then if it's Hector's, then you have an explanation for it. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, it's just partial, but it's still something. And Mm -hmm. um, the state decided not to do anything with it because they assumed, like I said, that it was just you know, rough play. Um, Yeah, you're about to hate it even more. So this obviously did not sit right with uh, David Brodsky. So he had um, the swabs from the rape kit sent off to a private lab in California that he used often for other cases. What was found in that kit was completely shocking. And it was sperm. Oh my god. And this was from underneath their nails? No. This was okay, okay, parts okay. of the rape kit, yeah. Okay. Um, but because the medical examiner had initially included that there was no outward sign of a sexual assault, uh, which basically means no damage or injury to the genitals that were obvious, the swabs were taken just for protocol uh, and nothing <sighs> with them. I'm pissed. Are you yep. fucking kidding me? I know. I wish I was. So... The sperm was a match to the DNA from under the fingernails. Yeah. Do they have a full, like, uh, okay. Just Anyway, just keep going. Just go, keep going. Yep. So um, <laughs> at this point, you know, when attorneys discover something, they have to give it over to the other side, no matter what it is. So mm-hmm. the defense turned this over to the state, assuming that the state would run their own analysis and confirm the findings, you know, with their own obvious state funding, which is much, you know, going to be pretty stout, and that that analysis would thus exonerate Jerry Hobbs. The DNA was not a match for him. That, of course, 
did not quite happen. No, they want to close this case fast. They're not going to add any new evidence. Exactly. That DNA sat for another year with no movement. So that discovery uh, was 2008. In 2009, after waiting a year with no movement, the defense team is obviously pretty pissed off. So they file some motions, more or less, to kind of get the heat moving. Mm -hmm. And the first one that they um, filed was to allow Jerry Hopps bond. And that did get the judge's attention, but he refused to lower it. However, that did cause the judge to order the state to do a full analysis of the DNA samples, finally. But the state did that, but did not run the DNA through the national database. Oh my God, people! I know, I know. So... Pissed off by this, obviously, the defense team is like, screw it. Let's burn all of our bridges. Files a lawsuit against the FBI itself because... Fuck yeah! I know. I love this. So the FBI, of course, houses CODIS, you know, the entire database. Mm -hmm. So finally, there's some movement. They run the DNA through. And there's no match. Mm. Yes. The defense obviously was like, hermph. Um... But yeah, exactly. same noise. <laughs> same noise. But they were at least able to build up now a case of who they called a quote unquote mystery man. A perpetrator was out there, just not one that mm-hmm. was in the system, which again, mm-hmm. my theory on Delphi. I think they have DNA. I just think there's no one in the system. Yep, I agree. So this is how Brodsky planned to move forward with the case, you know, building for Jerry's defense for that looming October 1 trial date, which is coming, it's coming before that happens. There's another shocking piece of news. Do you want to guess what that was? No, because I'm already like confused enough. I already feel like there's so many moving parts. I know. And I'm about to just give you a whole bunch more. And I'm so sorry about that. Is there another kid that goes missing? mm, Not quite. Mm. Okay. 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 So the state pops up and is like, Hey, um, we're sorry, but the DNA file that we sent to the FBI, um, it had a mistake in it. So, sorry. Um, sorry about it. Yep. So they caught the error, fixed it, and resubmitted the DNA. And then finally, oh a real hit to the real killer. Who was it? It's not Jerry Hobbs. Oh, my God. Big shot. I know. Okay. Who the fuck was it? The real killer was 22-year-old former Marine Jorge Avila Torres. Now, Mr. Torres, he goes by George. So I'm putting that out there. If I if someone's like, uh, it's Jorge, I know he went by George. <laughs> he was a 22-year-old who was in custody in the state of Virginia for the abduction, rape, and assault of three women. Oh, my God. Yes. So Torres had spent his childhood in Zion, Illinois. And I'm going to talk more about that in a little bit. So... This was 2009, right? Mm-hmm. So in 2005, when these girls disappeared, he would have been 18. 16. You said he was 22. Yeah, math is hard. 2000 and... <laughs> I can't believe I pencil paper math for this. He was 21. He was 21. We're the same age. I know we're the same age. Our birthdays are really close. Okay. 
So we had to keep in mind not being able to like <laughs> say asphyxiation. We're keeping this in. Oh no, I'm really I'm very math dumb. So 21 year old former Marine Jorge George Avila Torres. So uh, when the double murder was committed, he was 16. Okay. So a 16 year old junior in high school in Zion, Illinois. He joined the Marines after high school, which is how um, he got to be in Virginia. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to talk about how how he kind of got to be in, in jail and everything that went down with him. So on February 10th of 2010, he attacked a 26-year-old woman in Arlington, Virginia, while she was walking to her boyfriend's house. He basically mugged her, and she managed to escape and report the crime to police, which they were able to get, like, a description of the vehicle, that sort of mm-hmm. thing. So a couple weeks later, he escalated and he came across two graduate students who were walking to one of the women's houses. So he forced them inside of her home. He basically followed them, forced them inside of the home and bound them. And then while he was distracted by something, one of the women managed to loosen the ties and called 911. She's badass. Yeah. Then he comes back in the room and discovers the phone with the recent call on it. And he's like, no. So he forced her into his vehicle uh, where he raped her multiple times and then drove her to a secluded area and strangled her with a scarf and left her for dead in the snow. Oh, damn. Yeah. The next morning, a couple is going for a drive and they see a woman crawling towards the road. And that was her. Jesus. Yes. So she was survived the attack. Um, I'm leaving leaving their names out of it because mm-hmm. I think that they wanted their names to be left out of it. Um, yeah. So she was able to lead them back through the entire situation between the car, description of the car, description of him. And then some of their belongings were found in his vehicle when they did find the vehicle. Uh, he was arrested shortly thereafter and that gets us to why his dna is in the system in the first place for that hit to come up so uh in the initial searches of his home police found dozens of uh date rape videos on his laptop i don't believe that there are videos of him but it just kind of speaks to the type of thing that he was interested in so he is in custody for these three assaults And now we've got the DNA hit from the Zion murders, but he wouldn't confess to anything. So we've got the DNA hit. That's, you know, that's pretty good. You can't lie, you know, with DNA. You got DNA on eight, nine-year-old girls. Yeah. It's not much to argue with right now. Yeah. Here's the other thing that I thought was really interesting. Because of the thing with Laura's eyes and the fact that Jerry Hobbs was the one kind of initially to go down for it. In many ways, I think people saw this case as focused around Laura and that Crystal was kind of in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah. Jorge Torres, George Torres, was friends with Crystal's older half-brother, who he went to school with. My personal theory is that Crystal was the target and Laura was an experiment. So, you know, to put it kind of grassly. Yeah, that's kind of why I just think there's there's a connection to Crystal that's not there for Laura. So mm-hmm. while he was in custody, he was kind of um, he was kind of cocky, which is interesting because when he was in the Marines, he was kind of a nobody. He was kind of a pretty like unremarkable person in general. Mm-hmm. He didn't have that like Marine swagger that people talk about. He was just kind of a whatever 
sort of guy, kind of unremarkable. I feel like he kind of went into the Marines to get that swagger and it just never happened for him. He did. And he had gotten into a little bit of trouble at the end of high school. He was caught with like a small amount of pot at school. And so he got kicked out of the high school in Zion, went to a school across the state line in Wisconsin for a little bit. And I think he was able to come back and graduate from the high school in Zion in 06. But he had some discipline kind of issues in high school and then yeah. joined the Marines like, you know, he wasn't college bound. So, you know, he had to do something. No, I knew a ton of kids like that that went into the Army. Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah, I teach him, you know, left and right. So because he was kind of cocky while he was in custody, the authorities thought like, OK, maybe he would cop to the Zion murders under the right circumstances. Luckily, those circumstances came in the form of his prison roommate, Osama Elatari. Nope. So Osama Elatari is really interesting in his own right. He had worked as an informant before. And so he's kind of he's been down this path. So he's experienced. Yes. And he was not in for a violent crime. He was a restaurateur who was imprisoned for defrauding banks to the tune of $54 uh, million. Damn, Osama? Yeah. So he was sentenced to 12 years for that. Um, but he agreed to wear a wiretap in exchange for a lesser sentence. Um, okay. Should that wiretap lead to evidence against Torres. So Elatari, he really kind of expertly prodded Torres. Like, I think he he knew how to. He had a little swagger. He did. He did. He knew how to play this guy. He told Torres that he had, quote, balls of steel. He buttered Torres up a lot. Like he would whisper these kind of compliments between the bars, I guess, or whatever. He whispered sweet nothings. Basically, yeah. He not only implicated himself in the rapes and attacks in Arlington, he also asked Osama Elatari to help him somehow threaten the women that had survived his attacks to get them to not testify. He also implicated himself in the murders of Laura Hobbs and Crystal Tobias and in another unsolved death as well. Fuck yeah, Osama. I know. Love it. Yes. I think so, we said it before, snitches get looked favorably upon by parole boards. <laughs> they sure do, although his story ends tragically as well. Oh, damn um, it. Yeah. So the unsolved death, and I'm not saying murder, the unsolved death that Torres implicated himself in was that of 20-year-old Navy intelligence officer Amanda Snell. So Amanda Snell, um, she was... Beautiful, intelligent, disciplined, super well-liked and successful in her short career with the Navy. And she was planning on leaving the Navy to uh, transition to work as a special education teacher. So she's... Jeez, that's a leap. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So basically, there was this, like, barracks in Virginia that obviously a lot of people lived at and different branches of service were using the same barracks. So she was in the Navy. Mm-hmm. Torres was in the Marines, but they lived in the same barracks. Now Snell's body was found wedged into her locker with a pillowcase over her head on July 13th, 2009, when she did not report for duty on time. When she didn't report mm-hmm. for duty, people went out to look for her and found her body uh, in her locker. When those types of things happen and foul play is suspected in the Navy. They call out the Naval Service Investigative Service. NCIS. Yes. Um, wait. 
there's a C I'm not missing. Naval Corps. Investigation. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> they call those folks out. And the scene was perplexing. Her room was completely undisturbed. I think I remember hearing about this case. It's weird. Her body was completely unmarred. No blood, no evidence of any kind of sexual activity, no rape, no bruising, no um, no nothing. Totally clean. The only thing about it that was freaking weird is that it was stuffed into a locker. And like wedged into a locker. Mm-hmm. With a pillowcase over her head. But the pillowcase over the head was not the cause of death. So basically, the medical examiner concluded that her cause of death was undetermined. There was not a conclusion that could be drawn. An unofficial conclusion was drawn that maybe she had died of natural causes or an accident. No, she, you don't end up in a locker with a pillowcase over your head. Exactly. She um, she had migraines and she had like a mild heart disorder, unnamed. I assume it was like a heart murmur or like an arrhythmia, something like that, and that People would say anecdotally, when she didn't feel good with a migraine, she would often put blankets over her head, which any migraine person will tell you feels pretty good. Um, Yeah. But that does not explain being stuffed into a locker. But because there was nothing else to see, the case was essentially closed and the death ruled to be undetermined. So Torres described what he did to Amanda Snell, to Osama Elatari, as the perfect crime. Well, basically what he did is he strangled her with a laptop cord, but made it, managed to do so without leaving any marks. I take that to mean uh, slowly, which... Yeah. Oof. And that he was not stupid enough to rape her without a condom. Some of the direct quotes from the wiretap are um, pretty intense, and here's one snippet of one of their conversations. So, bro, you're fucking psychotic, Osama says. Torres answers, am I psychotic or am I smart? Osama says, well, you're smart because you got away with it. And then with regards to the Hobbs and Tobias murders, Torres said, does a lion feel remorse when it kills a hyena? Osama asks, you don't feel bad? Nope. Torres responds, at all? Nope. Jesus. No remorse at all. No remorse whatsoever. None whatsoever. I... So... Go ahead. Go ahead. No, go. Go. So I'm not going to go a ton into the court proceedings on this one, but I will say that um, there has been some speculation that he's responsible for other crimes that he just hasn't been able to get officially linked to yet. Mm -hmm. And I think there's no way that's not true. I'm just throwing that out there. I think, again, just kind of like the way that we talked about, like, John Eric Armstrong, he's so casual about it, Mm -hmm. and it's so cold Yeah, that there's got to be more here. There's got to be. The only thing that he ever even implied, so he he admitted to all these things on the wiretap to Osama Alatari. He would not ever admit them in court. So uh, he will, to this day, deny his involvement in these crimes. He did imply at one point to Elatari that he killed the girls in Zion because Crystal had witnessed something related to a drug deal mm-hmm. and that he needed to get her out of the way, essentially. I don't think that explains it very well at all, but that's the only hint that we have from him of why. Do we, did we ever figure out what he used to kill them? 
Uh, we don't have the knife. They know that it was like a three-inch blade. Okay. Um, but we don't have the knife. Hmm. Yeah. And we don't know what left the bagel marks. And the puncture wounds that came with them. Right. Now I'm the trying to think wounds, of like a tool in my head that like does that. Well, I, the, the way I understand the puncture wounds was like the same knife that did the puncture wounds. They weren't circles. They were just boop, boop. And then the final blow, I think you could do that with the same very sharp knife. Um, uh-huh. Like we've got this paring knife in our kitchen that is terrifying uh-huh. because if it like looks at you wrong, you're going to bleed profusely. <laughs> so with a knife that sharp, you could very easily do two punctures and a final stab. And so I think it has to be a knife that's really, really sharp to deliver an effective puncture wound without it being like a gouge, you know? It's just, it's so signature. Yeah. From what you said, like it was in like a pattern between the two of them that was repeated. Yeah. And then the cutting around the eyes, which... I'm willing to bet he only didn't do it to Crystal because he ran out of time. Yes, that's one of my theories. My other thing is like, okay, so this guy was 16 when he killed mm-hmm. these two girls. So if Crystal was the the real focus point of the attack, I think that he either started with Laura and then ran out of time or the opposite, you know, um, kind of got Crystal first and then retaliated against Laura's eyes because she was a witness or because he didn't care as much about her and could experiment with her. Yeah. Like he had a personal ish relationship with crystal. So I could see being like, okay, I'm going to do this methodical ritualistic stuff that I want to do, but I'm going to save my like experiments for the one I don't have a relationship with. Interesting. Yeah. All the stabbing, it's very like peakeristic and it is. It is. Yeah. It Uh, is so bizarre. It's so bizarre. So the thing that's crazy to me is like this guy, he's still cocky. He will talk. He is. uh, And again, I'm not going to get too much to the trial. Long story short, he was, you know, obviously arrested for all three murders. The Amanda Snell murder is what got him on federal death row. So he is currently on federal death row. He's over here at the prison in Terre Haute. Who isn't? Seems like. Uh, yeah you got a lot of them yeah i know right so the thing that's really jarring to me again is his age so you know he's 32 he's the same age as me he started at 16 with these murders there's no way in my mind that there's not other bodies out there or at least other assault victims that we don't know about particularly in okinawa japan where he was for a long time with the marines and others have kind of speculated that so i kind of have that theory too so why is John Eric Armstrong the smartest serial killer we've never heard of? I know, and right? Not Jorge and Torres. Not Jorge Torres, yeah. I mean, Jorge Torres is cold. He's so cold. Mm-hmm. He's so calculating, and there's just not that much to his backstory that explains, you know, why he did what he did. I think he's one of those pure ice running through their veins, complete sociopaths like john eric armstrong had that history that like, mm-hmm. does not it doesn't excuse him in any way shape or form like it's not an ed Gein situation where it's like you feel empathy for him 
but we know it's also like the trail to being a serial killer. Exactly. Yeah. With this guy, I mean, from what I could research, I did not get the sense that there was anything particularly interesting about his family life, like pretty typical for Zion. Um, those like minor trouble in school, nothing big, kind of a whatever guy, wallpaper, you know? Mm-hmm. So I just think he is just ice cold, but he'll talk to you. I found a guy on YouTube that uh, exchanges letters with him and didn't Shut get too far. Up. Yeah, didn't get too far because he won't confess to anything. But I thought that was really interesting that like he will. Maybe you just could butter him up. Maybe. I mean, Osama Alatari did it. So let me tell you some to kind of bring it all together. Let me tell you where the key players kind of are for now. Yeah, I so, feel like I got you way off track. I'm so sorry. <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. That's what we're here to do. So um, Torres is currently serving multiple hundred year sentences uh, and sits on federal death row. So he will be executed. There's not yet an execution date, but he will be executed. He has tried to appeal uh, unsuccessfully. There's not any particular grounds on which he can appeal. I mean, mm-hmm. but what they tried to do, well, Osama El Atari was released after serving four years of his sentence, of his 12-year sentence. Not too long after his release, he was shot and killed in Virginia, probably with robbery as the motive. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it sounds, from what I can tell, random-ish. Uh, mm-hmm. He was pretty notorious in the area. He also was, like, really cocky. He called himself the King of Ashburn, which is where he lived. And he was really flashy about his wealth. So robbery was the motive, most likely. The authorities do not think that his snitching activities were tied to his killing, but that's what people kind of latched onto right away. But mm-hmm. he was gunned down and robbed So because he was killed, Jorge Torres' team was like, is it fair to uphold testimony from a dead man basically in court against Mr. Torres? Of course, it is when you've got it on a wiretap. So that's essentially why the appeal uh, didn't fly. All of this went down, obviously, with George Torres uh, resulting in Jerry Hobbs being exonerated after five years in jail just awaiting trial. So he was exonerated and released. He um, went on to go ahead and sue pretty much every law enforcement agency involved in Illinois ever and won many settlements. The numbers I found... We like to settle a lot of things here. Yeah, right? Uh, So he (laughs) got about $7 million as a result of these lawsuits. I mean, here's the thing. Jerry does not sound like a winner. Yeah. He does not sound like a great stand-up guy. Right. But he deserves due process and he did not get due process. Yeah. And he didn't kill. He didn't kill his daughter. I mean, he did not kill these two girls. Yeah. He didn't. So he got about seven million ish dollars in settlement, almost none of which he was particularly able to use because he is currently back in jail also. Oh, my God. Jerry. <laughs> yeah. Um, from what I gather, more like petty little stuff, but he just hasn't mm-hmm. been able to stay out of trouble. In a lot of ways, to me, this story felt like obviously a a tremendous miscarriage of justice and also kind of a tragic tale of what happens when we don't have good enough programming in place to help people that are released from jail on nonviolent offenses or on even though the thing with the chainsaw was a violent offense, the guy he was in the fight with was actually the chillest about it in the end. He was like, 
we had a fight scheduled. It's, it's not his fault. He <laughs> so, oh like, why are we so mad at Jerry? So, I mean, that's really kind of where we leave it. That is the case. All of these players are tragic in one way or another, obviously. Um, Jerry Hobbs, you know, was robbed of five years of his life and also had to go through losing his child. Mm -hmm. Um, The Tobias family lost a child. George Torres is a cold-blooded serial killer. Officially, he has three mm-hmm. murders, and Osama Alatari was the linchpin, and just was like randomly gunned down. So it's like there's no, no one makes it out of this case unscathed, right? Like this is state of Illinois. No, this is just like one tragedy after another after another. But I do think it's a really interesting case of like what happens when every circumstantial sign points to somebody Mm -hmm. and you're able to kind of layer onto that their previous record their um i think they used his looks against him in many Mm -hmm. ways um that sort of stuff like it really just just makes me question like in what situation and what circumstance does somebody actually get a fair trial what happened to Jerry Hobbs was in no way, shape, or form fair. And I think we'd like to say, like, oh, that kind of stuff doesn't happen now. That sounds, like, so 60s. Oh, shut up. It's not. This was a case with DNA that was freaking ignored. Like, literally mm-hmm. ignored. Rape kits yeah. on second graders ignored. Oh, God, that's disgusting to think about. Yeah. It's true. I think that we really need to check our biases when it comes to these prosecutions in these cases Mm -hmm. you know that this reminded me so much of the west memphis boys Mm -hmm. because of the way everybody you know you watch the west memphis three documentaries and um william byer's dad Mm -hmm. is you know he looks like a crazy person that would kill three kids yeah and people just jumped on him so hard and it took decades for him to for people to believe that he didn't do it yeah and i think you almost never you know you how do you ever really shrug that off? Like it damages every relationship, every, everything, Mm -hmm. you know, how do you build back from that? And somebody like Jerry Hobbs, like he's been bouncing in and out of prison for his entire adult life. Mm -hmm. You know, he's there now. So at what point does he get, you know, and he did what he did as far as the other like small crimes and things like that. I assume he did what he did, but, um, You know, at what point does he get a fair shake at all? Exactly. I mean, robbery and, I guess... Consensual chainsaw fight. (laughs) Consensual (laughs) chainsaw fight. Are are, are still very different crimes from child murder and abuse. Yeah, exactly. So that is my depressing case of the day. God, that was crazy. Isn't that bonkers? That had enough twists and turns. It felt like one of my cases. You just think you're the queen of twists and turns, don't you? I just like them, okay? <laughs> I mean, there were no twists and turns when it came to Ed Gein. At least I didn't think so. No, he's but a straight line. He's a straight line. Boy's a straight line to the cemetery. Yeah, <laughs> sure is. Disgusting. Yeah. Yeah, so there you have it, people. So how should we wrap this one up? I don't know. Is there a moral to this story? Um, whoo. 
Yes, I'm sure there are many morals to this story. <laughs> um, how about don't interrogate people for 20 hours straight after they've been awake for the previous 24 hours so as to get from them a false confession that keeps them in jail for five years? False confessions are bad for everybody. Yeah, that's a good lesson. False confessions leave killers on the street. Yes. And it made it possible for George Torres to literally become a serial killer. Yes. And a serial rapist. Yes. Lazy prosecutions and lazy investigations allow for serial killers to develop. Yep. And thank goodness he was apprehended when he did because he's a young guy and he could have had a long and terrible career if he hadn't have been caught. God, that's crazy. Yeah. So on that note... So on that note... Yeah, take us out. You take us out. Oh, well, we got to plug next week. Yes. Oh, I forgot. I'm tired. (laughs) It's okay. Let's plug this so you can go to bed. Yeah, thank you. It's been a long snow day for all of us. So plug for next week. Yes. All right. So next week, we are going back in time. Ooh. And I'm going to tell you a mystery. Ooh. An unsolved mystery. What? That's exciting. We are going to investigate the death of David Box. Oh, this is going to be awesome. I'm really excited about this. I love this story. I've been obsessed with this story since I was like seven. Yeah, this is going to be creepy and weird and really interesting. Oh, I'm excited. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So please come back for that next week. Please, please, please. Please, please. Please, please. Little bag. Please, please. Little bag. It, it's a really interesting story. It is really interesting. It All is. right. Anyway, in the meantime, Tommy needs to get to bed. I do. So it's time to go. It's time to go. Time. Please continue and encourage your friends to listen and follow us on the socials at Midwretched Everywhere. And leave us nice reviews. Say nice things. Please give us some stars. Mm-hmm. We like. Stars. We need stars, please, guys. Yeah, yeah, we would love up them. the ratings. Heck yes, heck yes. So yeah, be nice to us and come back next week. Yeah, and eat cheese next week yeah. or this and, week. You know, know that we love you. We love you all the time. Yeah, all the time. This week, next week, all the weeks. All the weeks, even when there's two feet of snow on the ground. Exactly. We love you, and that's true love. That is very true love. So stay warm. Indeed. Bye! Pat, pat, pat my vagina. Pat, pat, pat my vagina. (laughs) I'm going to leave just that part in. (laughs) Just you singing that is going to be the bloop for the episode. (laughs) That's terrible. (laughs) Everyone's going to be like, oh my God, I love it.